0: Dr. Swain, thank you so much for leading us in that time of musical praise. Uh, I think I may be hoarse already just from singing out the praises of the Lord. And Dr. Allen, thank you so much for for inviting me to be here. Uh, we, We enjoy, on behalf of Summit Woods Baptist Church, we enjoy so much the rich partnership that we have with you as a seminary community. You've been a rich blessing to our congregation And we are so grateful for the partnership with you that we we enjoy together. I want to invite you this morning to turn to the Gospel of Matthew again, just one chapter back from where Dr. Allen was reading in chapter 15 of Matthew's Gospel. And I want us to focus our attention this morning beginning at verse 21. I thought I would just bring something light and fluffy, um, no controversy at all. So I just want to talk about the Canaanite woman. If you know anything about that, this would be scandalous in our season. Listen to God's word, Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Our Father, we pray for divine understanding of your intention for us in our understanding of this text and for its usefulness in our soul. We pray in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, amen. Some people can study a diamond, every facet of it, each cut each element of it, and they can even write a factual book, maybe even a journal article for peers on the mesmerizing nature of the diamond. They can even speak to the vast wealth and value of that diamond. They can be severely impressed with a variety of components in regard to that diamond. But I'm, I'm more compelled with the story of the young man who has been studying a diamond even dreaming about a diamond, thinking about every facet of that diamond because he is so mesmerized with the one that he is about to put on the finger of that bride-to-be, he's compelled. His fascination with the diamond is so much more clear because it's, a, it's a, an affected kind of aspect on his heart than merely the person who writes the article because he's impressed. There's a difference between being impressed and being affected. That kind of difference should compel us when we think about our Lord. That is the question that I want to talk about today. Are you impressed or are you affected? As the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's affection. Or as my favorite writer on this subject has said, true religion in great part consists in holy affections. Vigorous engagedness of the heart in religion. That is the fruit of a real circumcision of the heart. That religion which God requires and will accept does not consist in weak, dull, and lifeless wooding. W-O-U-L-D-I-N-G. That didn't come up as a word, Microsoft word recognized. Lifeless wooding. Raising us but a little above a state of indifference. God in His word, greatly insists upon it that we be a good, earnest, fervent in spirit and our hearts vigorously engaged in religion. If we, bent in good, earnest religion and our wills and inclinations be not strongly exercised, we are nothing. In other words... If what you see and learn and come to know about in the person and nature of Christ leaves you little more than interested, relatively indifferent to Him, you are likely not a Christian. I want us to see what it looks like to have the affections of great faith. And when I use the word affections, I think most of us To assume that I mean by that emotions. But I mean something much more complex than merely the emotions that accompany faith. Affections are more complicated than merely having an emotional response. Let me suggest a definition provided by one of my historical heroes, Jonathan Edwards, who died 263 years ago yesterday. In his book, "Religious Affections," which I think is one of the greatest books I think I've ever read, I, I want to tour it and dive into it every year of my life, and I keep it close to me in my study, because I pick it up and read through it often. Edwards defined the affections this way. Listen carefully to it. The affections are, the more vigorous and sensible and I think he means by that sensible, something felt, having something having to do with the sensations. Sensible exercises of the inclination of the soul. I've tried to find a better definition than that, and I think he has it. I I don't want to take anything away from that definition, but maybe just to unpack it. Affections are not normal feelings, but they're heightened, uncommon sensations. Affections are not merely exuberant feelings but sensations that are directly connected to the activities involved with the inclination. The inclination is the bent or the internal drive to approve something or disapprove something that's deep within our very soul. There is a bent inside your soul. You are either inclined to affirm Christ or you are inclined to deny him and not affirm him. The bent of your being is shaped by what you think about Jesus, what you know to be true about Jesus, how you know that. And what you think about him is actually bending you toward him or away from him. That's your inclination. And yet the affections, the affections are the vigorous, the above normal sensation that are expressed because of the compulsion behind the inclination of your soul toward Christ. And according to Edwards and I would say the Apostle Peter, great affections for Christ are not optional. They're not optional for saving faith. They are essential to saving faith. But what would they look like? How would you know that you or someone else with whom perhaps you've been sharing the gospel actually possesses true affections for Christ? Edwards suggests in his book that there are a number of uncertain signs that describe whether you have affections for Christ or not, such as having high affections, physical feelings, fervency to talk about Christ, spontaneous affections, Scripture suddenly coming to mind, the appearance of love, having many kinds of affections, experiencing comfort, joy, desiring to engage in Christian deeds, publicly praising God, and unusual confidence in God, others affirming your joy and expressing your affections, True affection may and perhaps will have all of those things, but they are not sure signs because false affections can look like many of them. True affection may not be less than all of these suggestions, but it is sure to be more than them. What we have just read in this passage is a powerful depiction of the kind of affection that comprises what Jesus himself calls great faith. I want us to carefully consider what we learn here in light of having the affections of great faith. The Canaanite woman is obviously the focus of the account she arrests and she commands everyone's attention. She is also not merely a seeker of help for her daughter, but a believer in Christ as Lord. Jesus himself indicates that she has shown great faith. But what has differentiated this des- desperate woman from the crowds that would sprint long distances to seek Jesus' healing? What makes this woman a woman of great faith? Isn't it, it isn't too difficult to see the affections of this woman that reveal her heart toward Christ as being one of maximum belief. But what does it look like? How does it express itself? What are the affections that comprise great faith? I want to look at four different affections this morning that reveal great confidence, maximum belief in Jesus, the affections of great faith. Four affections of great faith that are described here. Let's look at them together, meditate on them, examine our hearts, examine our expectations. In regard to these. First, the first affection of great faith that we look at here in this passage is what I term as a zealous desperation for Jesus. A zealous desperation for Jesus. Again, in verses 21 to 22, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. From where did he come? Probably the area of Capernaum. That was the last place that we saw him around Gennesaret, just a few miles south of Capernaum. And to where is he going? Tyre and Sidon, the coastal cities, northwest of Galilee, outside Palestine, beyond Israel's borders. The actual cities are more than 50 miles from the Sea of Galilee, which was the headquarters of Jesus' ministry during that time. We're not sure if Jesus actually went all the way to these cities themselves. It indicates he went to the district, the parts of that area. But you'll recall, if you know Matthew's gospel, something significant has already been said in this book about these cities. Back in chapter 11 and verse 22, these cities were marked as cities of judgment. I tell you, chapter 11, verse 22, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Those cities are still marked for judgment, but more bearable for them than for you. These are cities associated with the ancient Philistines, pagan cities, Gentile territory. You can research the Old Testament to find prophetic condemnation to come to them in the future in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. These are areas that Jews would likely never go, especially Jews who wanted to follow Christ would not follow him there. Why? They're not going into Gentile territory. but That's precisely where Jesus goes. Why does he go there? The text tells us he withdrew. That word withdrew is used in this gospel a number of times. It describes the Magi secretly fleeing Herod after they had seen the baby Jesus in chapter 2. Joseph fled to Egypt. Joseph fled from Archelaus to Nazareth. Jesus was going to Galilee after the arrest of John the Baptist, fleeing. Jesus was leaving a synagogue after learning that the Pharisees were conspiring on how to kill him in chapter 12. He withdrew, he fled. Jesus is going to a district outside of Herod's jurisdiction upon hearing about Herod's interest in Jesus just after he had killed John the Baptist in chapter 14. This word has the idea of fleeing or escaping. What would Jesus be escaping from? What is he running from? If you go back and look at the preceding context in the first 20 verses of this chapter, especially if you you note verse 12, The disciples came to him and said, Do you not know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Jesus had just trashed the authoritative tradition of the Pharisees and publicly called them hypocrites and plants that the Father had not planted. They hated him. They wanted him dead, and he fled. Mark chapter 7, verse 24 adds color to this. For our understanding, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And this is critical. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. We don't know whose house. A Gentile house, more than likely. A house of a sympathetic Jewish family member living in the outskirts of Galilee in the Gentile ter- territory, perhaps. Perhaps. But Jesus is diffusing the situation, hiding from the attacks of his enemies, resting with his disciples, not wanting to be found. This is not a moment of refocus of ministry to the Gentile territory. It's not that. This is supposedly hiding from public ministry. It's a getaway, escaping the threats and possibility of arrest and execution. Verse 22, And behold... You always want to pay attention when Matthew throws in a behold. He uses them for good reason. Something unexpected, something astounding is happening here. A Canaanite woman from that region. A Canaanite woman. This is unexpected. This is astounding. This is startling. A Canaanite woman. This is the only time in the New Testament this word is used here. He means for us to think in terms of an Old Testament connotation. He does not describe her here as a Syrophoenician woman, as Mark might do, but a Canaanite woman. A woman associated with the enemies of Israel. He wanted us to connotate something negative, perhaps disgusting, about someone whose difference is viewed negatively. Mark calls her a Gentile, Syrophoenician Phoenician. Matthew says this is a Canaanite, a Canaanite woman. Not that it would be unusual for women to speak to Jesus, it was not, but for a woman to come boldly in this way to address a man in a home in this manner did not fit anything related to the acceptable mores of the culture. Even more than that, notice in the text that it says, she came out and was crying. She had heard of him, Mark says, in his gospel. She knew that he was there. So she left wherever she was, perhaps her own home, and went to where Jesus was crying, not weeping. Don't let that be the idea in your mind that she was weeping. This word is a word for shouting, screaming, Crying out, yelling. It's in the imperfect tense. She kept doing it. She was constantly yelling and shouting for Jesus to have mercy on her. Have mercy on me. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. We don't know all that is happening with this daughter. Mark 7 tells us it's a little girl. She is severely demon possessed, obviously, perhaps deathly ill. Have mercy have mercy. Other times that that phrase is used is to describe others in the gospel of Matthew who are seeking physical healing. There is a need that this woman has that is driving her to Jesus as it had driven many people to seek Jesus. But here's what is fascinating about this woman and her request. She recognized that the kind of need that she had, the kind of need she possessed required a supernatural, unique, all-sufficient source and answer. The need was seen as so deep that it drove her to a desperate plea for help, and as she was convinced that the only answer was Jesus, who was hiding away in a house. She was unconcerned about why Jesus was there, What it would look like for a Canaanite woman to be yelling outside a house for Jesus to have mercy on her by healing her demon-possessed daughter. Nothing in her life mattered to her than getting to Jesus. This is a deep and zealous desperation for Jesus. This kind of zealous desperation for Jesus is just one element of what comprises great faith. Do not think it is the only element, but it is one, and it is essential. Let me point out a second. A second element of great saving affection, great faith, a compelling understanding of Jesus. She has a compelling understanding of Jesus. This is what is necessary for true affections. It's not just zeal. It's not just desperation but it's desperation from an understanding of who he is that compels you. Now, what do I mean by this? How significant is it that a Canaanite woman would address Jesus as, O Lord, Son of David? A Canaanite woman? We're not told if this woman is a God-fearer, a Gentile who is pursuing God through Judaism, We're not told that. By the way, all of those who ask for mercy of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, they all refer to him as the son of David. It's fascinating. This, this is nothing shy of a recognition of Jesus as the promised Messiah. That's what she's confessing. The fact that she adds Lord is equally fascinating. If It stood alone in the request and she merely said, Lord, we would think that it was possibly just a word of respect, but combined with an exclamation that this is the son of David, it is likely an indication she saw him for who he was, divine, the son of God, the promise of God visiting his people. It is interesting to note that every time she addresses Jesus, she calls him Lord in verse 22, verse 25, verse 27, and even refers to him as master in verse 27. But she was not one of God's people. How could she possibly think that Jesus would have anything to do with her? She may be much more well-informed and thoughtful than we expect. This is more than a desperate mama. This is a well-taught mama. She's heard the preaching of Jesus that had been going on throughout that region. She knows of his claims. She knows of his power. She's approaching him as the son of God, who is the only one in the universe who can meet her need. Only Jesus. Your affections for Jesus are great faith when you are not merely desperate due to an extreme need, but when your need drives you in a gripped confidence, a compelling plea to Jesus because you thoroughly understand who he is. He is not merely a provider of food. He is more than a healer of diseases. He is more than a giver of good gifts. He is the promised Messiah who came to save people from their sins. Her compelling understanding drives him, drives her to him. The affections of great faith contain zealous desperation, a compelling understanding, and third, a humble persistence for Jesus. A humble persistence. Would you look carefully at how Jesus answered this woman? Verse 23. He did not answer her a word. He ignored her cries. He ignored her constant cries. The persistent pleas, the begging, the confession, the acknowledgement of who he was. He responded with stone silence. Not A word as if he hears absolutely nothing going on, he turns his head and closes his ears to this pathetic, pleading Canaanite woman, and we are not told why not at this point. Was Jesus a misogynist, a racist? Did he not care? Was he hard-hearted? Was he without compassion? Was it a bad day? Was he only concerned about preserving his own skin? Did he just want a little me time? What is fascinating is that his ignoring her did not stop her persistence. And we know that because of the response of the disciples. And his disciples, it says, came and begged him. They begged him. Likely this is the 12 who are in the house with him and they begged him in perfect tense again. They constantly begging are begging him. As much as she is screaming and pleading, they are begging Jesus. She is crying out after us. She continues to yell and shout for you to have mercy on her, Lord. No one can calm her down. No one can stop her. No one can dissuade her. No one can convince her. Please send her away. What do they mean by that? What do they mean? They don't mean just, just make her go away, because she's not going away until she gets what she wants. What they mean is, heal her. Heal, Heal the daughter." And that's why Jesus responds in verse 24, "I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." This is not news to the disciples. They knew this. It was precisely the instructions that were given to them in chapter 10. They were to go nowhere among the Gentiles, no town of the Samaritans, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was the statement they were told by the Lord. Fascinating. A pleading woman, Jesus ignores. Begging disciples, he virtually ignores them, shoots them down. This seems so shocking, so lacking in compassion, so lacking in kindness. It uh, it appears so limiting, segregating, and almost racist. It's breathtaking. What would you do? You want Christ that much? You think he's the only answer to the need that you have, and it seems like you beg him and you beat constantly on the door through prayer, and it's as if you receive nothing. You serve him, suffer for him, and you hear nothing. Zealous desperation, compelling understanding, humble persistence. Last, consider selfless submission. Selfless submission. How did this rejected woman respond to her ignoring Savior? Verse 25. But she came and knelt before him. This absolutely takes my breath away. It is not merely that she won't stop coming, even when he ignores and then verbally slaps her down in rejection. She worships him. She worships him. She knelt before him. Proskuneo is the term here for worship. It is what the disciples had done in the boat when Jesus got in with Peter and the wind and the waves were stopped in chapter 14. They worshiped. Some would suggest it simply refers to the physical act of humility and submission, perhaps. But what is connected to her kneeling? What is connected to her kneeling is her confessing. She was kneeling while saying, Lord, help me. She worshiped by saying, Lord, help me. Her worship was tied to her seeing her need of Christ's help. True worship is expressed in humbly seeking God's help as much as it is in excitingly declaring his majesty. She knelt before him, humbly sought his help. There's no one that can help but Jesus. No one can solve her need. She doesn't want to go to anyone else. She is that convinced, that convicted, that confident, that needy for him and him alone. She's desperate. And Jesus responds in verse 26. He answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's not right to take Israel's salvation and give it to the Gentiles, the dogs. If CNN had been present, even more so a social justice warrior or a Christian discernment blogger, can you imagine what this would have done on the web? He would be immediately excoriated by everyone in the culture. Outright rejection from someone I think every one of us in the room would feel obligated to help. What would you do with that Jesus? You worshiped him. You see her response in verse 27? What was her response? Yes, Lord. Yes. She affirms the Lord's comments about her being outside the covenant people of Israel. Yes, I am. One of the dogs. She acknowledged that she deserves nothing from him. He's not obligated to meet her need. He owes nothing to her. She has no legitimate claim on him, and he has not any necessity to extend any grace to her. And she calls him Lord, stays on her face, and likens him to a master who has every right to do anything he wants with what belongs to him. Yes. Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She's still confessing how desperate she is for him. This is total selflessness. Absolute submission to the complete sovereignty of Jesus to do anything he wishes with the power that belongs alone to him. And finally, verse 28, he responds with everything that we've been longing to hear from him. Oh, woman. The O is important. Oh, woman. Here it is. Yes. Great is your faith. Why? What better description of confidence in Jesus could you possibly ask for? What deeper description of the value of Jesus could you dream up? If your faith will be the kind that keeps coming to Jesus, no matter what God ordained, God planned, God initiated obstacles stand in your way, that is maximum belief in Jesus. And Jesus does extend his mercy. And the girl was healed. He was not obligated to heal her daughter, but he did. I'm always encouraged by that. Desperate sinners, desperate sinners are never, never ultimately turned away from Jesus. He may act in ways to draw out what is really in us, but those who come will find him to save. Let me conclude. What do these affections say about Jesus? Well, we certainly see what they say about the woman, but what do they say about Jesus? Every desperate, compelling, persistent, submissive cry from this woman is also an emphatic statement about the soul sufficiency and worthiness of Jesus, isn't it? The affections of great faith are fueled by a personal apprehension of Christ's uniqueness. His massive majesty is put on display here. With every request she says of him, Jesus alone is merciful. I need his mercy. Jesus alone is the promised uh, Savior. I must have His salvation. Jesus alone is completely authoritative. I must have Him act for me. Jesus alone is adequately sufficient. I have nothing if I don't have Him. This is why it is great faith. The statement she is making about Jesus by the affection she demonstrates is what separates her desires for her daughter's healing from the crowd's desires to be fed and healed. When Jesus' person is that compelling, your affections will be that obvious. Let me leave you with one more thought. What do we learn about the disciples from this account? Seeing the affections of great faith in this woman as she sees the sufficiency of Jesus is a stimulating lesson for the onlooking disciples. Why? Just prior to this chapter, Jesus walked on water to a boat of struggling disciples in the midst of a sea that was raging. And Peter walked to him for a moment until he doubted. And Jesus had to pluck him from the water. In verse 31 of chapter 14, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of what? Little faith. On the heels of the disciples, hearing Jesus call them little faith, they hear Jesus call a Canaanite woman a woman of massive faith. Here's a woman who wasn't even supposed to be a believer, showing the affections of massive faith. And what does that say about these disciples who are fretting with the Lord who is walking right beside them? This is a humbling example for us. These are the affections of great faith. Where do they come from? <clears throat> Edwards said, these affections are supernatural activities of the heart loving God for who he is as God, not for self, loving what is holy because of a spiritual enlightenment of the soul, divinely convinced of the spiritual truthfulness of Jesus, flowing from deep spiritual humility, a changed nature expressing a Christ-like meekness toward others in need and a spiritual tenderness toward God, all balanced together, no one above the other, producing an unquenchable spiritual appetite that works itself through proven Christian living. That's real affection. You see it in this woman's life. Don't let these discourage you if yours are not as vigorous as the woman's at the moment, but are they present? Is this how you see Christ? Is this how you talk to people when you talk about conversion? Is this what you're looking for when you're looking for someone to be a Christian? What if this was the mark of those who comprise the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? What would that look like in our culture in this day, in this time? Father, we pray that we would be those who express great, true, vigorous affection for Christ. And may this testimony linger in our soul for us to meditate on and to dwell on its personal implication, on its corporate implication for our churches, and even for how we preach the gospel. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.